Before we sit this morning, I would like to offer a few thoughts about thinking. I don't want to get you thinking too much, but um, I think it's really useful to have some perspective on the process of thinking and what science is saying about thinking. And uh, just it's helpful to really uh, explore it a little deeper. Uh, I want to start, though, with a couple of poetic tributes to Earth Day. You'll probably be getting a number of these today. So here's your first two. This first one is from Kurt Vonnegut, Jr., uh, from Cat's Cradle. God made mud. Then God got lonesome. So God said to some of the mud, sit up. See all I've made, said God, the hills, the sea, the sky, the stars. And I was some of the mud that got to sit up and look around. Lucky me, lucky mud. I sat up and saw what a nice job God had done. Nice going, God, I said. Nobody but you could have done it. I certainly couldn't have. I feel very unimportant compared to you. In fact, the only way I can feel the least bit important is to look and think of all the mud that didn't even get to sit up and look around. I got so much, and most mud got so little. It goes on. What interesting other kinds of sitting up mud I met. (laughs) And this is from Wisława Zimborska, a Polish poet, wonderful poet, Pulitzer winner, I think. It's called Psalm. Oh, the leaky boundaries of man-made states. How many clouds float past them with impunity? How much desert sand shifts from one country to another? How many mountain pebbles tumble onto foreign soil in provocative hops? Need I mention every single bird that flies in the face of frontiers or alights on the roadblock at the border? A humble robin sitting with its tail abroad and its beak at home. If that weren't enough, it won't stop bobbing. (laughs) Among the insects, I'll single out only the ants sitting between the border guards' left and right boots and ignoring the question, where are you from and where are you going? (laughs) Just look at the chaos prevailing on every continent. Isn't that a blue jay on the far bank smuggling its hundredth leaf across the river? And who but the octopus with impudent long arms would disrupt the sacred bounds of territorial waters? How can we talk of order over all when the very placement of the stars leaves us doubting just which one shines for whom? Not to speak of the fog's constant drifting, the dust blowing all over the desert as if it hadn't been partitioned Only what is human can be truly foreign. The rest is mixed vegetation, subversive moles, and wind. (laughs) Lovely. Yes. So, some thoughts on thinking. The first line of the Dhammapada, which is the collected verses of the Buddha, is... 
All that we are is a result of our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. And I think uh, I got started in meditation because I realized I had a thinking problem. I was a heavy thinker. My mind had... My mind would start thinking early in the morning when I got up. I think in the middle of the afternoon. I had to, had to have a couple thoughts before I went to bed at night, you know. <laughs> I, I needed an intervention. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the most powerful realizations that, that we get from from meditation, and we have to get it over and over again because we are so deeply committed to believing in every thought that comes along. Um, but we probably know you probably know more about how your VCR is programmed than how thoughts are produced or how they you know how they happen in the mind. This is uh, the Tibetan sage Tulku Ergen. The stream of thoughts surges through the mind of an ordinary person. There is no knowledge whatsoever about who is thinking, where the thought comes from, where the thought disappears. One has not even caught the scent of awareness. And that person is totally, mindlessly carried away by one thought after another. What is a thought? A thought... uh, it's a little pathway through the brain, a little group of synapses that fires messages to each other, and poof, it's gone. Just doop, doop, doop. And as we grow and learn, these pathways get, get uh, set up. These, they're called neur- uh, resonating neuronal assemblies. And so the same patterns of thoughts happen over and over again because that's what we've learned and they've been, they've been kind of grooved into uh, the pathways of our mind. Our culture is completely focused on thinking, on the content of thought especially. That's what we're graded on in school, uh, how well you can manipulate your thoughts. Um, but there's very little attention paid to the process of thinking. Asking those questions that Tolku Ergen asked, where does the thinking come from? And uh, what, what is it really? What is a thought? Someone once said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's ironic. I mean, I spent the first half of my life learning how to think. And now I'm, I'm spending the second half of my life learning how to ignore my thinking. <laughs> what was I thinking? I... <laughs> now, I don't want to give the impression that I'm, I'm saying that thoughts are bad somehow, and that is a, a, a mistaken thought uh, of many beginning meditators that somehow we want to get rid of thoughts. No, that is not the case. We, what we're trying to do in meditation is expose the mind to itself 
So we can begin to see the patterns. We can begin to see that they aren't self-generated. Uh, we can begin to, to really get a, a kind of objective understanding of this process that rules our lives. It's, it's so important. So important. But uh, thoughts are not bad. Thoughts are useful. As, as a species, thinking is our, part of our genius. We make up these symbols and... Uh, Allow and commonly agreed on symbols for things, and then we uh, are able to share our understanding with each other uh, and even pass it on to other generations. But we've be, we've grown as a species to believe that our thinking makes us superior to other forms of life. This is Charles Darwin from his Secret Notebook. Why is thought, which is a secretion of the brain, deemed to be so much more wonderful than, say, gravity, which is a property of matter? It is only our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. Or as Stephen Jay Gould says, an octopus doesn't go around being proud of its eight arms. What they are saying, basically, is that thinking is a, is a kind of a local adaptation, a way that we have developed to register events that happen, hold them, uh, in, 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 store them, and share them. It's a, a, uh, a survival tool. The, that's the way the Buddha, the Buddha saw the thinking mind as a sixth sense. He didn't elevate it uh, higher than the, the senses of sight, sound, taste, smell. It was just another way of perceiving the world. I've found it very liberating to begin to understand thinking as a survival tool and I see so many of my thoughts somehow can be categorized as a way of um, ensuring my existence and my well-being through time, especially the planning mind, which seems to be there just about all the time. You know, here we are, and yet the mind's tendency is to go into the past, into the future, more and more studies are showing that that's the, the kind of default position of, of the mind. If, there, if you're not focused on some specific thing, you're just sitting there. You aren't just sitting there. Your mind will start to go into the past or into the future and, and uh, either go over the past in order to uh, try to learn from your mistakes or go into the future as a way of rehearsing what's going to happen and what you're going to do. To view the thinking mind as a survival tool helps to sort of demystify it and also depersonalize it. You know, you're part of this life force that has as one of its ultimate priorities continued existence. Um, it It is what we're all born with and we certainly don't want to get rid of it. But it really helps to loosen our attachment 
to our thinking mind to really understand it as a survival tool. I mean, I sometimes think what our ancestors' thoughts were, you know, way back when we got way back into the uh, the longest period of our the thirty the the thirty thousand years or before the thirty thousand years, you know, when we were hunter gatherers, and uh, you know, I wonder who's watching the fire tonight. Uh, what color should I paint my spear? Uh, you know, I mean, what? <coughs> What were their thoughts? Probably pretty much similar to our thoughts, only with uh, what we call primitive technologies. Who's going on the hunt tomorrow? Sometime in, take a meditation session and see how many of your thoughts can be categorized as survival thoughts, including thoughts about where you stand in the pecking order. That's also part of your survival mechanism, kind of getting a sense of yourself in, in the tribe. What science is discovering is really interesting. We, we so, are so convinced that we create the contents of our mind and that we're in charge of it. But more and more science is finding that uh, the mind really is a kind of self-organizing tool and does its thing, and our conscious um, awareness comes in really late in the game, often just to weave what we've done or are doing into our story about ourselves. This was... uh, in the summer of 1995, that was 15 years, a long time ago, uh, in, the, in the history of neuroscience, it's a really long time ago, 1995, Time magazine ran a cover story called In Search of the Mind. And it was a summary of the latest scientific understanding. And I'm sure that most people were shocked to realize that the mind was lost and maybe even more shocked to realize that the scientists can't find it. The, the last paragraph of this article was so astonishing to me that I had to write it down, and I, I write it down, and I, re- I read it quite often. The final paragraph of this cover story, despite our every instinct to the contrary, consciousness is not some entity inside the brain that corresponds to self, some kernel of awareness that runs the show. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have concluded that such a self simply does not exist. Now, this was in Time magazine, and these are scientists saying the self does not exist, at least not up there in the head. I mean, why wasn't there a nationwide panic of some kind, you know? Yeah, that, well, of course, they didn't look in the elbow, but um, <laughs> more and more they are understanding how beautifully designed this organism is and how much it does on its own. And we really begin to see that in meditation. You really begin to see how much goes on, as George Harrison said, within you and without you. 
And uh, really, it's evolution flowing through you that has created this marvelous uh, mechanism, organ. Over the years of, of doing this practice, uh, it's not just been the contents of my mind that has become intriguing to me, but it is the knowing itself, that mysterious quality that we call consciousness. Nobody knows what it is. It's, it's like the great mystery itself, that which knows. Um, the great biologist Francisco Varela, also a Tibetan Buddhist, said that is the definition of life, is it's that which knows, that which takes in and, and exudes information. Uh, the Tibetan Buddhists have some wonderful names for this elusive, unknowable thing, substance, non-substance we call consciousness. They, they seem to deify this, uh, this pure knowing as, as like the ground of being itself. Here are some of the names the predicateless primordial essence, the weaver, weaver of the web of appearances, the outbreather and inbreather of infinite universes. That's a name that they, they give to pure consciousness. You can see it in meditation sometimes if you look real carefully in between the thoughts, in between the phenomena that are continually moving through the mind. If you can find a moment sometime and see if you can see it. Where is it? Is it just in your head? What is it? Does it have any substance? Things, I mean, here you are, you're looking up here or you're looking and, and there is something that knows and yet you, and you turn over here and it knows what's going on over here. It registers that scene. You hear the sound of my voice. That too is known. And you don't have to do, you don't have to arouse the knowing. The knowing is always there. So I want to do a, um, guide you in a, in a meditation this morning to help us get a little bit of a sense of that knowing mind, that strange, mysterious quality that we call consciousness. First of all, just be aware of this room, the fact that you can know of this room, that your mind actually encompasses this whole room. It's that big. It's huge. It, it fills this whole space, doesn't, doesn't it?
It's not just in your head. It reaches to... Wait, you can see that the mind is that big. It encompasses the space outside. Now close your eyes for a few minutes. Actually, for more than a few minutes. And bring attention to the sense of hearing. I was counting on some turkeys or frogs to help us with this exercise, but maybe they will arrive before we're done. (laughs) Excellent. So... Just let the sense of hearing be there and receive whatever sounds arise. Sounds close in in the room or just outside. Begin to realize or sense or visualize that the edges of awareness can extend outward to encompass the source of the farthest sounds you can hear. Let the edges of awareness expand outward. Opening to all the sounds. Thank you. Creating a sense of a great open space of mind.
Letting the boundaries of awareness be wide, open. Extending the edges of awareness to include the farthest sounds you can hear. And then let the edges of awareness dissolve. creating a vast sky of mind. No limits. And through this great open space of mind, all phenomena appear and disappear. Sounds come and go, thoughts float through like clouds. Sense that the mind is limitless, open, accepting all things, but holding on to nothing.
Let go of any outline or map you might have of the body so that sensations are not taking place in any specific limb or any specific part of the body, but are twinkling in this great space of mind off and on like stars. Just sensations in this great space of mind. Reestablish the sense of the big sky mind. You can come back to the sense of hearing. Again, letting the edges of awareness move outward to include the far sounds and then dissolve.
open, vast, great sky of mind. Sometimes compared to a great mirror, reflecting all things, yet having no characteristics of its own. Limitless, unborn, All phenomena move through the great sky of mind without leaving a trace. I'm going to play the bell now, not to end the session just yet, but to 
create some waves for your big sky mind. When you hear the bell and open your eyes, you can bring that sense of that boundaryless, borderless, big sky of awareness with you into the light.
So, did you do you enjoy the big mind? Did you enjoy swimming through that uh, vast space? It's so much easier to sort of let things go through when it's that open. When we're when we're tightly focused on the breath, and some phenomena enters the mind, the mind is kind of narrowly focused and it fills the whole space. When the sense of the mind is that open and something enters, it just kind of has a lot of room to disappear, float away. It's really, really a wonderful tool. And you can use it any time. It's not like a, you know, a specialized practice that you can only do it specific on Earth Days or something. But uh, so, you know, feel free to, to use it. And outside, if you're sitting outside, it's wonderful. You can get a sense of the big sky mind through the, the, the uh, sense of seeing and then sort of letting the boundaries dissolve and you're sitting in this, under this great uh, sky of mind, this knowing So we have time now for some discussion and questions uh, about things we did yesterday, last night, um, yesterday afternoon, the truth mandala, this morning, meditation practice. It's all open for discussion and comment. We need a runner. Yes. Did you run before? No? Okay. We have to train you up then. Uh, Here. It's right there. Testing, testing. Um, I really appreciated doing the big sky meditation, but I didn't find it wonderful. Um, When I first went out there, I felt very lonely. I felt very... I didn't have my separate self with me. I really didn't have it. And it was sort of like an experience of sometimes when you look up at the sky on a really clear night and you see just how vast it is. I felt not fear, but a kind of a weightlessness that was unsettling, a little unsettling. Um, My body kept um, reminding me that even if I didn't have a self, I had a body. (laughs) And so I was still dealing with sleepiness and other problems that have come up. But I could feel a lot going on in my body, and I was grateful for that, actually. But there was a feeling of uh, losing an anchor that I have relied on. Interesting, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's big out there. <laughs> and just getting a sense of it. I mean, I don't think we really have a sense of it at all. Uh, 
I've been, I've started, when I look up, I've started trying to think, not sky, space. Because I think sky imply, it gives us a, the implication of a kind of ceiling. But then space, suddenly I realize that we're on this little rock, hurling, literally hurling through space, spinning around the Earth's axis at a thousand miles an hour, and depending on where you are in the curve, but spinning in our orbit around the sun at 66,000 miles an hour. The miracle is we don't have to hold on, you know? It's like, can you feel the space wind in your face? It's, it's, it's really phenomenal. And, and the, to think that just uh, maybe a century ago, we knew uh, barely of one galaxy. The latest estimate is that there are 100 to 200 million galaxies. Galaxies, not solar systems, galaxies. Millions of them. It's just, it's just beyond our ability to comprehend how big and... I mean, and also, that, can, I, can I add one thing? Are you, are you interested in this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, well, the Kepler, the Kepler Space Telescope is now up, out there looking for planets that could support life. Where and, is it? Where is it? <laughs> it's up there. <laughs> oh, I see. It's orbiting. Yeah, yeah, it's orbiting. Yeah, it's orbiting. And uh, it's found many in our galaxy alone. They're in, in the Goldilocks zone, they call them. Uh, not too hot, not too cold. And so planets that, that could, could support, could support uh, water and life. And so there's something like 50 or 60 already that in our galaxy alone, and 100 million galaxies, uh, the chances are really good very probable, very likely that there's life all over the place out there. Which I think is really good news because it takes the pressure off of us, doesn't it? <laughs> we, yeah. We no longer have to carry the entire burden of meaning in the cosmos. Um, occasionally, I would like to have it, have it happen more than it does, but when I'm resting in my breathing meditation, my mind actually calms to the point where there's this incredible joy that comes up because my mind is actually that calm that it's not having the thoughts. And um, I find myself trying to chase that feeling of that calmness and that joy rather than resting in the calmness that would produce the joy and the, the, the expectation of that joy arising makes it so the calmness can't happen and therefore the joy doesn't happen. <laughs> and do you have any tools for stopping the thinking so that way I'm not, I don't have the expectations for the joy to spontaneously arise from the, the lack of thinking? <laughs> <laughs> That's... 
it, it's a bit of a conundrum, isn't it? Uh, you really, uh, you learn over, after years of doing this practice, that really, you kind of have to accept what's there when you sit down to meditate. And even if you're a seasoned meditator and have been doing it for years, someday you sit down, some days you sit down, and the mind is just full, you can't find a breath, you know? So, to be able to be okay with that and say, and maybe give that a little uh, label, uh, mind is confused today, mind is full of thought today, and have that be the whole, your, your whole experience is, is being aware of that. Um, you know, you'll get lost a million times when the mind is like that, but to be uh, as accepting as you can of whatever is there during the day, and then you know, those moments come, the moments of ease and calm and thought, you know, empty of thoughts, uh, come when they come. Um, It really is learning to be accepting of whatever is there, whatever arises, and to be more comfortable and not, you know, not having to get caught in, you know, the sort of judging mind, my mind is crazy, I'm not doing this right. That's really the trap. And uh, if we can let that go, meditation practice becomes a much sweeter place to go every day. You know, because you you aren't going to find the calm every day. And um, so, yeah, trying to, trying to say, okay, this is, the the Buddha even says it in the, in the instructions for, uh, paying attention to, to mind states. It says one knows when the mind is full of, of confusion, and one knows when the mind is free of confusion. One knows when the mind is full of fear. One knows when the mind is free of fear. He, he's saying very simply, just see what is going on, and the, the minute you see it, and the minute you name it, it, it loses some of its power. So that's, uh, you know, you sit down and you take what you, what, what you got, that, that moment, you know. Thank you. I was um, moved by what you said about the uh, being out in space, and I, um, for a very long time, 15, 20 years, would have a, would have a lot of despair about an image that would recur a lot of being a, a, a speck of dust outside of any gravitational uh, sphere uh, floating in space to eternity in utter black darkness, no attachment anywhere and um, and then separate from that at some point I started tracking my DNA back and realized that I was connected with everybody else with shared DNA forever and not just every other human being but everything and it was a great comfort, and it re and that uh, last night when we were doing the 
uh, regret the, I can't remember the name of it, but the whole regression thing and then coming back, I, I had us as the original tribe. <laughs> Uh, walking together, uh, you know, in in the space, there were only however many of us humans who had been created fifty, and it it brought me that same comfort uh, again. Mm-hmm. And uh, ever since I had that realization of, wow, you are connected back. Uh, your lineage is mm-hmm. long, long, long. I never had that uh, despairing image again. So that, that's beautiful. And, and, and in the exercise, you, you didn't feel lost at all. Oh, I felt like, here are my kin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they've named uh, our common de- uh, descent, uh, ancestor the, the, the single-celled being that we are all related to that was the mother, father of us all, uh, Luca, the last universal common ancestor, a single-celled being. The scientists are having such fun, I think, you know. (laughs) They're discovering all this new stuff they can name and... I've been having a lot of uh, shoulds and struggles and questions since the since I shared what I shared the second time in the Truth Mandala. Um, so I said things there that I think about and that I feel about hating other people and not wanting to understand people I don't agree with, not wanting to connect with them. Um, and I even sort of said, and sometimes I just feel like killing them. And I feel ashamed of those thoughts and that I said those things and that I, and that I have that uh, dark side. Um, and, and I know sort of everybody that I admire, all the leaders and the people that I admire whether Martin Luther King or Gandhi or Dalai Lama or you as teachers, people in this room, and the way I live my life is really coming from a place most of the time of great love and kindness and generosity and compassion. But I have, as I said, these times where my anger at people and their actions that have created so much suffering um, that I really don't, I don't see them as the part of humanity that I want to know or understand or connect to. And I know, as I think the the woman said a couple times after, who came into the circle about how I am then guilty of creating the same polarity and black and white and them and us as they are, and I'm contributing to my own um, arrogance. It comes from also an arrogant 
place of self-righteousness. Like, I know the truth. My values are the right ones. Theirs are wrong. And so I know the ways in which people say, in my mind, how this can be hurtful to me, or maybe I'm not acting always from a good place. Um, but I really don't... What I, my question is, um, to be a good person in this world, for myself and my relationships to everyone, and an effective activist on behalf of the things I believe in, do I really need to come from a place of love and forgiveness and compassion? I feel I hear that and read that and believe that in terms of the people I admire and I look to and I learn from. But I'm not sure I, I don't really understand how blame and hate don't sometimes serve me in a useful way about naming who's responsible and giving me a passion to act, non-violently, but to act. I know what you're talking about, and uh, I'd like to talk about um, anger and hate, and I'd like to say something about spontaneity. I felt that what you did was a wonderful use of the truth mandala. There's vitality. You were not letting judging mind uh, stop the... This was vitality coming out. And uh, first of all, what I heard was anger, not hatred. And those are very, very different things. Anger is not one of the three poisons that the Buddha talked about. Those are greed, hatred, and delusion or ignorance. Hatred is ill will. And we were phrasing it quite deliberately in the truth mandala as anger is passion for justice. There's tremendous warmth and vitality in what was exploding out of you. It was obvious that it was a passion for life. You weren't uh, putting a, a, a lid on that to appear piously concerned or, you know. Um, so I... What's closing down our people? Uh, what is uh, cutting the nerve of our passionate response, vitality of response to the horrific conditions that are being created uh, is um, help me out here well it's it's I think I felt from you that there was a way in which you know though there's that Tibetan wonderful saying, drive all blames into one. And that these figures 
had become the the one symbol or embodiment of ignorance and carelessness and disregard and you know in the world for you and um I mean, I think that it can be very useful to have that kind of anger, recognizing that all people are caught in their own... You know, when you watch your own mind in meditation, one thing that happens is (coughs) compassion naturally arises because you realize how everybody is doing these great... struggling with these great battles inside of them. But anyway, I, I think that that's what you were doing. They were... So you were driving all blames into one, into, you know, just happened to look like a specific being. Um, I thought that was kind of healthy. And, and when, um, when we say uh, they're struggling also, um, and so don't hate the people, hate what they do. Or love the person but hate or disrespect or feel angry at their acts. I don't know how to separate those things for the people who knowingly act. So that's where I don't know how to separate or forgive. I can't just forgive an act or without, I don't know how to forgive the person who knowingly perpetrates. And is it important that I do? I think part of my question, is it, is it important that we... Why is it important? Why is it important that I forgive them and try to also love them? I think that um, what's uh, crying out there is uh, a wanting that uh, these uh, causes of suffering cease. And it really helps to recognize that in our culture particularly, I mean, in our planetary culture now, these uh, three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion, have become organized, institutionalized, embodied Mm -hmm. in huge systems. Mm -hmm. And that... That's the problem, that the uh, uh, embodiment of the hatred in huge military systems, the embodiment organization of delusion in huge propaganda, info entertainment, media systems, the uh, embodiment institutionalization of greed in uh, the consumer society and the uh, industrial growth economics, etc., and that the people that uh, we're targeting uh, and that we can name, the individuals, are actually uh, in bondage to these larger systems. They're not the cause. Uh, they're, some, they're less free than you are. Probably the least free person in the country is sitting in the Oval Office. So that there are these... So it really helps. I think it's great to blow your top. I wouldn't have been offering the uh, truth mandala if I didn't. But the truth mandala is not a place 
for considered policy statements in which you define, you know, your it's a place of, you know, stub your toe, ouch. It's a place to say, ouch. But, uh, and then, once you do, you can simmer down or you can uh, create a, a more spacious, have, find a more spacious mind. So that we've got to be careful that what we, and I ought to find a way to say that when I uh, offer the truth mandala, that we don't take this as definitive in any way of a person's philosophy of life. Um, yeah. So thank you for bringing that up. I'm glad you did. I think it's nice what we've been doing about sharing our emotions about the state of the planet and stuff. But I feel like we're just as stuck as the people we're talking about in the, like the leaders and the big corporations. And I mean, I came here and I took a plane and I took a car. And like I feel like just living in this system, we're as guilty as anyone else. And I don't know how to reconcile this. Like, uh, yeah, like just in Canada, there's a huge, huge, huge uh, problem around the tar sands that are being like, that are destroying like a huge, like part of the country. But just because it's like up north in like Alberta, like we don't see it. Therefore, it's kind of this abstract like, Thing, but I every time we take our car, we just live our lives. We take part in that problem because the tar sands, they're being like done because we need gas. Because every single citizen and part of the population just perpetuates the problem. There's the problem of like the how it's being provided, but it's being provided because there's a demand, and we are this demand. So how do you reconcile that? I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about this. <laughs> well, I don't want to say we'll talk about that later, but we will. <laughs> We're going to talk this afternoon about the great unraveling and the great turning and how we're all, how we can participate, ways we participate. But you're right to point out that we're all complicit. And because of our complicitness, because we are interdependent with this great ball of suffering, that means that we have leverage, that we are, our acts count because we are dependently co-arising. We are taking part. So nobody's innocent here. But that very uh, involvement is related to our being able to make changes that have ripple effects in the whole culture, especially collaboratively. Thank you. Um, I wanted to address our good friend over here, who was asking the question about forgiveness, of why do we need it. Um, we need it because in order to truly, truly act in the ways of, say, Gandhi and Martin Luther King and all that, we have to have that, for, that weight of anger off of us. And forgiveness lifts that weight It takes a long time to get to true, heartfelt forgiveness. And that's why when you see the Tonka 
in the Tibetan stuff that shows the transformation of hatred into love, it's a demon for good reason. It's hard to do. When moments of forgiveness finally comes, it is a grace. It's a gift that comes to us. One way to prepare ourselves, though, is to constructively work through that anger, work through that hatred, say its name, and not just say its name, but even put it into ritual. A good friend of mine who had been abused by every single person in her family and how she survived without going insane is beyond me. She gave me this practice, and just to think about it sounds so wonderful. She went to the hardware store, got herself a galvanized steel garbage can, the biggest axe handle she could find, and a pair of work gloves. Threw that into the trunk, drove out into the most barren field she could find. She was a very good Hindu and had been told, you do not harm any living being while you're working out your anger and your hatred. She took out the garbage can, the axe handle, the gloves, put on the gloves, and started beating the shit out of that garbage can, banging it all around the field. And with every crash, it was, I hate you for doing this. You did this to me. This is what you did. Blah, blah, blah. And she was screaming at the top of her voice, and it went on and on and on until she literally beat that garbage can to pieces. Then, like the good Hindu she was, she picked up all the pieces, took them to the recycling center, (laughs) and threw the axe handle and the gloves back into the car for the next time she needed to let out some anger. So for these guys that are pissing you off, find a ritual and keep doing it until grace comes and you get to the end of it, and you can finally lift off the weight of your hatred. Thank you. We, we have time for maybe one more, and then we want to do some yoga this morning. So we want to move a little bit. We'll have, we'll have more time for, for doing this later in the day. Well, this is... Uh... A huge question for me, but a perspective, if you could. Uh, last night's uh, walking with our ancestors was just uh, so powerful to me. It was just such a, an incredible uh, time spent and the way we did it. And I, I kept so deep going back with my ancestors, with my family, uh, that I have know of, and again, being of through Europe and through steerage and uh, <clears throat> since it's Passover, Egypt, building the pyramids maybe, uh, and going back and back maybe to the beginning where, where I'm part of all civilization. <coughs> so I'm tracing my blood, my roots. But I also have this feeling that uh, in all my travels and living overseas in so many countries, certain places I feel that I was living and born and had, I feel like I was once in India, I once 
I believe I was uh, in Japan. I believe I was a slave in Jamaica. This is connections. In other countries, I felt I didn't. So going through what I trace historically, my ancestors, how do you feel uh, integrated or throw in the rebirths in different places that we sometimes study and hear about and talk about? Is your question, uh, how is it that you uh, remembered uh, things to uh, events and lives with which you could have had no genetic connection? Is that the question? Yes, even though considering my bloodline probably goes. Uh, yeah. But of course, back to Adam and Eve, we all went through all kinds of cultures and races and yeah. people, but somehow... Well, in my experience, I think that is possible. I think that that is a reflection of either, you can call it a collective unconscious or collective consciousness, especially which is, I notice and believe, is uh, becoming more accessible to us now because collectively we are in such danger so that collectively our... uh, the life story that uh, has brought us forth through the uh, millennia uh, is more accessible to our uh, senses, our moral imagination. I would like to close just to take a minute to tell you a story. As you spoke, it came very to my mind It occurred, uh, it's an event that occurred 20 years ago this day. It was this day, meaning not the date, but Good Friday. And we were in Findhorn Foundation in Scotland uh, with uh, 250 people who had come together to uh, move through... The uh, what we call it Deep Ecology Passion Week uh, from uh, before Palm Sunday through Easter and, and then to Easter Monday when we disbanded. And in that time, uh, we uh, drew from uh, what we was, let me just say that the, <clears throat> yeah, it's, I mustn't hurry. I know I want to tell you this and you want to hear it. Yes. This week, I organized and I was inspired by a uh, quote from a line I read in Matthew Fox, The Coming of the Cosmic Christ. Uh, he was a Catholic priest, now an Anglican priest. <clears throat> and uh, as a matter of fact, well, I mustn't go off there. Um, he uh, said... The Paschal Mysteries, that means Easter Mysteries, of the third millennium will have to do with the death and resurrection of earth, where earth plays the role of Christ crucified. I'm going to repeat that. The Paschal Mysteries of the third millennium will have to do with the death and resurrection of earth, where earth plays the role of Christ crucified. 
So uh, with Matthew, I brought him there and the 250 people. We brought all the different spiritual traditions, um, Buddhist, Sufi, Orphic, and Jewish, as well as Christian, and fit them in to this week. And there was the sense of these traditions all coming together to um, join uh, in their art and imagery and practices in service to the ongoingness of life on earth. Uh, They're so vividly stamped uh, into the fabric of my life. And at one point in England, religious differences are felt, at least back then, much more vividly than here. And there were some contretemps, there were some um, feeling that people, uh, particularly about the timing of Passover, and, um, but there was also the uh, women. There was, uh, they felt these are patriarchal religions and I don't want to have anything to do with them. It felt very strongly. And then there was Protestant, Catholic, wow. And there were people from Irish, Ireland, and that came out very strongly. And it, there was a point on this morning of that, of the week, where I thought that it was going to blow apart. There was so much sort of anger of the ages that was simmering up. Fortunately, there was time for the ancestors' walk. Just what we did last night. And there we were. Huge number of people, but the Universal Hall at Findhorn is very big. And I use the same music, which I love. And it didn't need to be said in the cues I gave. It became evident as we walked back. We walked back before Protestants and Catholics spun off and separated. We walked back before Christians and Jews took separate paths. We walked back before there was... Uh, anything you could call patriarchy. We walked back. We walked back. And we saw that the source of our conflicts were very recent and that we had a deeper identity. Uh, I hope you find that relevant to your question. It is to me that uh, when we think, and I said it again, that we're, all of this is in us. The slaves and the slaveholders. The uh, white settlers massacring the Indians and the Indian victims. The uh, death camp administrators and those who, and the uh, victims and inmates and the, those lost. None of this pain must go to waste. We must not be afraid to take that. And of course, in the time we'll feel tears, we'll feel rage. But if we hold it, we hold, then life wants to come through us. Because in holding it, we can love them. In holding it, we can love ourselves. 
I don't know how to forgive, but I know how to love. So we will, um, let's move as we get up, we'll move our uh, Zafus to the side, right? And everybody will get, we'll take 10 minutes, come back in 10 minutes and we'll do some yoga. Maybe it'll be a little shorter yoga session this morning. And uh, we'll continue with the day. We're running, well, right on time.